Hebrews 12, 22 through 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. the heavenly Jerusalem and to enroll oh sorry innumerable angels in festal gatherings and to the assembly of God, the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Don't you all appreciate God's word? And thank you, Jenny, for reading for us. Thank you for blessing us with that reading. We appreciate that. We are continuing in our Hebrews series downtown here. And uh, it's been meaningful to go through this series together and Every time we go through a book series, it's always great to just dig into the book together to see where it's going, to see its riches, and that's been true of the Hebrew series here. We're kind of winding down, and so uh, glad to be approaching the end together with you all. I'm supposed to preach tonight, right? I heard there was food, so I came down. <laughs> but, okay. Um, so today's text, as you heard Jenny read that, um, it's kind of a dense text, right? Sometimes you open the Bible and there's certain passages that you read and they just seem to be super clear about what God is saying. John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him would have everlasting life, right? Like that's really uh, clear. It's really straightforward. We value that passage because it just tells us really clearly about God's grace and love for sinners. But then we come across Hebrews 12, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. 
<laughs> that doesn't make much sense right off the bat, right? It's kind of confusing. It's a little dense. A lot of this passage, as you dig into it, as you heard Jenny read, there's a lot of it that just doesn't make sense right, uh, right away. And so it reminds us that the Bible is God's word and it is for us, but that does not mean that the Bible was written to us. We've talked about this many times at church and it's just another reminder. The Bible is for you, it's for me, but it was not written to you, it was not written to me. It was written to people who lived thousands of years ago. They had different language, different concepts, different ways of understanding things. And if you're gonna get into the text, you kind of have to get into that world. And in particular with this passage, there's no way to say, well, we kind of read the passage, let's just talk about it without getting into the nuts and bolts. It's not gonna make sense unless we get into the nuts and bolts. And so we'll have to do that tonight. But as we do that, as we dig into this scripture and get into the weeds a little bit, we see a picture of God where God's character comes to the fore and what God has done in Jesus comes to the fore and it's richly and deeply good news that we need tonight. God is unchanging in his character. He's a holy God who never changes in his character, but he's also a gracious God who has sent Jesus to redeem us of our sins and to promise an everlasting and unshakable kingdom. So let's look to the scriptures tonight and ask the Lord to guide and direct our time. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've spoken to us in your word. We thank you that you are a kind of God who wants to be known and wants us to know you. We thank you for that. We thank you that your word also doesn't just reveal information. It's not just a list of truths. Your word tells us about what you've done. What you've done not only as our creator, how you sent Jesus to be our redeemer and to make all things new. Lord, we live in a world that's broken and we need to know that you are making things new, not only ourselves, but this whole world. And so Lord, help us to find our hope in Jesus and the fact that he is bringing an unshakable kingdom to find our hope in that and then to live in light of that kingdom. May we honor you with our time together tonight. May we grow in our love for you. May we trust you, learn how to trust you more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews 12, uh, the first uh, chapter 12, let's try that again, starts with this strong exhortation. This is Hebrews 12, verse 1. The author says, let us run with endurance the race set before us. What he means in context is uh, the author of Hebrews is writing to people who are Christian, but who had formerly been Jewish. And so throughout the text, he's having to remind them, look, you're experiencing pressure to abandon Christianity and go back to Judaism. Let me give you reason upon reason upon reason to hold fast your faith in Jesus. Here in Hebrews 12, 1, he's saying, run the race with endurance. Don't give up your faith in Jesus. Continue as you run this race to hold fast your faith in Jesus. Don't go back to Judaism. Judaism is good. Judaism is a gift from God. God gave the world Judaism. But Judaism is fulfilled in Jesus. So don't abandon your faith in Jesus because Jesus is the fulfillment of all that was promised in Judaism. Hold fast your faith in Jesus and run that race with endurance as you continue to have faith in Jesus. So that's his primary exhortation or his primary encouragement in Hebrews 12. But then after that, he wants to give reasons for why they should run the race. Last week, uh, there was a sermon about this. Hebrews 12, verses three through 17, talked about the first reason for uh, running the race with endurance. Run the race with endurance, because even though you hold fast your faith in Jesus and might suffer for that, even though some of the Jewish community might put pressure upon Christians, um, God is working something good in that suffering. God is training or disciplining those 
who uh, believe in him, he's using that suffering to train them, to discipline them. And discipline is a sign of God's love. God uh, disciplines those whom he loves. So God is working something good through your suffering. Hold fast your faith in Jesus and run the race with endurance because God is doing something good with your suffering. Tonight, we want to spend time on verses 18 through 29. We'll talk about two things. He then gives a second reason to run the race with endurance and to continue to believe in Jesus. Run the race with endurance because Jesus has made a better covenant. Jesus has brought a better covenant. And also, run the race with endurance because Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. So we'll look at these passages tonight. Let's start with the first point. Keep running the race. Hold fast your faith in Jesus because Jesus has made a better covenant. This is verses 18 through 24 that Jenny read for us. Let's read them again just as we dig into this. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Okay, so that's dense. There's a lot going on here. Let's talk about what the author's getting at. Really, he's comparing two mountains and two covenants. He says there's Mount Sinai. The the original audience that would have heard this or read this would have understood. uh, The author's talking about Sinai where God met with Israel and gave them the law, gave them the covenant. And then he's comparing that to when Jesus has come and has delivered people to uh, Mount Zion, which is really the heavenly Jerusalem and means heaven. Jesus has come to deliver people to heaven. He's brought a new covenant that allows people to gather with God in heaven. But let's look at the old covenant. Mount Sinai. So God uh, raises up this people, Israel. Uh, They end up uh, enslaved in Egypt, and then God miraculously delivers them from slavery in Egypt. And right after delivering them from Egypt, they end up uh, at Mount Sinai. They're gathered there, and God wants to give them the law. And as God gives them the law, he meets them on this mountain. He descends, his presence descends upon the mountain at Mount Sinai as he's giving them this law. And it's a good thing. As God descends upon the mountain, his presence is there. He meets them. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the first human sinned, humans have struggled to experience the presence of God. Adam and Eve were uh, ushered out of the Garden of Eden and were not allowed to come back in to experience God's presence. All life in a sinful world is lived outside of God's presence. And this is good news. God is saying, I'm gathering my people. I've rescued them from slavery in Egypt, but now I'm going to meet with them on the mountain. So that's good news. God is restoring his presence to sinful people. But it's also a terrifying experience because God meets them in the full splendor of his holiness and majesty. And when a holy and a majestic a perfect and righteous, good God meets with sinners. There's goodness, but it's a scary affair. Look at how the author describes this. When God met with Israel in verse 18 at Sinai, he describes it as a place of fire, darkness, gloom, and tempest. Uh, My daughter last night, uh, we were having bedtime. She's three years old. It was a rich time. It's talking about God's love for her. And she said, Dad, please tell me more. I did not start out by saying, honey, 
uh, when you encounter God, it's a place of fire, darkness, doom, and tempest. <laughs> but the honest truth is that when sinners encounter a holy God, it's an intimidating affair. It's an intimidating affair. Israel asked in verse 19 that God would stop speaking. They could not bear his messages. They said, God, please don't speak anymore. We cannot bear the sound of your voice. Verse 20, the mountain was made so holy that there's this command given uh, that any animal who touches the mountain should be killed. One commentator put it this way. The idea was that if animals touched the mountain where God's holy presence settled, those animals then would take on that holiness and would become dangerous. To be around those animals would be a threat to one's existence because God's holiness has been imparted to them and now being close, as sinners who would be close to these animals, it would be dangerous. So the command was for these animals to be killed. And Moses, Moses was so close with God. Moses walked with God in many ways. He heard God's voice. God spoke to him and then God used Moses to deliver the message to the people. But even Moses, who was so close to God, was afraid, it says in verse 21. When sinners encounter a holy God, It's great that we experience God's presence, but it's also an intimidating affair. But you compare that to Mount Zion. Look at Mount Zion. The author says, when Jesus has come to bring this new covenant, this better covenant, look at what happens. First of all, yes, God's presence is there. People gather with God. There are angels who are there. There are saints who are there. There are people who've been made perfect who are there together. So there's presence. And they're in heaven. This is good news. They're in heaven together. But look at the the language. There's no darkness, right? As we move into these verses, verse 22 and following, there's no darkness, there's no tempest, there's no gloom, there's no fire. In fact, it says in verse 22 that the angels gather in festal gathering, in festal gathering. How many of you have sent out an Evite in the last five years inviting someone to a festal gathering? Anyone? I have not. That's not language we use, but it it was used in... uh, the ancient days to refer to like a joyful feast. So when people gathered for the Olympics, they would use this phrase to talk about getting together for a joyful feast in celebration. People would get together for other feasts and they would use the same phrase. So what's happening is people are experiencing God's presence. At Sinai, they could experience his presence, but in fear. Now with the new covenant, the covenant Jesus has brought, they experience God's presence, but it's in joy and celebration. Joy and celebration with God in heaven. And so the author is telling the audience, hey, you're experiencing all this pressure to go back to Judaism. And his message to them was, don't give up your faith in Jesus. Hold fast your faith in Jesus. Yes, the Old Testament is good. Yes, Judaism is good. It's from God. But in the Old Testament, people would experience the presence of God in fear. Jesus has made it possible for us to experience the presence of God in joyful celebration. Is that not good news? It's good news that we could experience God's presence in joyful celebration. And it's because Jesus has washed our sins so that we can come into the presence of a holy and a righteous God without fear, but with joy and celebration. Well, what's, the, what's, what's this mean for us today? There's several things it can mean. I'm just going to focus on a couple things. So most of us aren't tempted. Like if we struggle to have faith in Jesus, most of us do. There are different days when we have doubts or things that maybe call us away from faith in Jesus. A lot of things can pull at us. But most of us aren't pulled away from faith in Jesus, and the the alternative is not Judaism, right? Uh, Most of us, when we read about the old covenant that God gave at Sinai, we don't think that's that that kind of uh, tempting piece of 
theological cake that I want to go to if I'm tempted away from Jesus. In fact, a lot of people, when they maybe encounter the idea of this holy God at Sinai that induces fear, that's a problem for them. Maybe people inside the church or outside the church, the idea of God's holiness can be a little off-putting sometimes in our culture. So people don't like that. Or a second objection can come up. Some people might say, God seems holy and he seems angry in the Old Testament, like dad woke up on the wrong side of the bed in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, God is gracious and loving and merciful. In the New Testament, God has had time to have his morning coffee and he's warmed up, or he woke up on the right side of the bed. And as they look at these pictures of God, they feel like God maybe is inconsistent with himself and have questions like, can I trust the God of the Bible? Because he seems holy and angry in the Old Testament, but he seems loving and merciful and forgiving in the New. Can I trust the character of this God described in the Bible when he seems so different? Well, the good news is, first of all, we need there to be a holy God because this holy God rescues us from a world of moral meaninglessness. It's good news that God exists and he's holy because it delivers us from a world of moral meaninglessness. We need there to be a reason to know that justice matters in the world. And because God exists, justice matters. Justice is not simply... uh, a description of behaviors that we can pursue that help us as a species to survive better. Uh, some ethicists I've, I've read about in academia, and they'll say, look, um, we don't believe God exists, uh, but we have to give an account for ethics. And, and so what makes something ethically right to do? Well, those behaviors that cause us as a species to survive better are those behaviors that are ethically moral. What is right, what is moral, is those things that are conducive to the survivability of the species. But if somebody has ever mistreated you in a gross way, or somebody has taken advantage of a family member of yours in a terrible way, and someone tells you, I'm sorry, but that was just a missed opportunity for the survivability of the species, does that sit right with you? It shouldn't sit right with us. If people don't believe in God, increasingly fewer and fewer people believe in God. And it's not that we have all these angry atheists running around there, these miniature Daniel Dennett's and Christopher Hitchens and uh, Stephen Hawking's that are all angry. There's just a lot of people who don't believe in God and they're like, I don't see the point. I don't see why it matters. I don't see why it's relevant. But those people who are not believing in God have this nagging question. I've talked with many of them. If God doesn't exist, what makes the morally right thing the morally right thing? How is it not just our cultural preference to pursue notions like justice or habits of justice, to care for other people, to be loving and sacrificial towards other people. But because God exists and he is holy, our desire for moral meaning in the world is meaningful. Because God exists and he tells us what is right. God exists and has made people to bear his image and to be valuable and it's worth treating people fairly and to love others even sacrificially, because God has given them value. As a holy God, he's determined that they have value, and it means there's moral meaning in the world, and that's good news. But a second thing is that this holy God of the Bible is, is unchanging. It's not that there's this holy God in the Old Testament, and then in the New Testament he comes loving and gracious, and these ideas are inconsistent with each other. God is unchanging throughout the scriptures. So if we come back to the passage we're working on tonight, um, look at verse, which verse is it? I believe it is verse 22. So it says, you have come to Mount Zion. Jesus has allowed us to come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the what? The judge of all. In heaven, when we gather with God, 
he continues to be the judge of all. And how is God equipped and able to judge? It's precisely his holiness that equips him to judge. God does not drop his holiness as we move into the New Testament. God does not shed his holiness as we move into the New Covenant. This God is unchanging. He remains holy in the Old Testament, and he remains holy in the New Testament. But what has changed? What has changed here in the New Covenant? What has changed is that God has sent his son Jesus to pay the price for our sin so that we can gather in his presence joyfully. An unchanging God, a God who does not change in his character, has sent his son Jesus to change us, to wash us of our sin so that we can enter into his presence with joy, celebration, and with gladness. And look at how the author describes this. He says that, uh, it's in verse 24, we've come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What that's talking about is that uh, Abel, he was one of the sons of Adam and Eve, um, and his brother Cain, they had both made offerings to the Lord in Genesis Uh, You can see this in chapter 4. So both these sons make offerings to the Lord. Uh, Abel gives of his best, and Cain holds a little back. And as they make these offerings to the Lord, the Lord honors Abel's sacrifice because he gives his best. He does not honor um, Cain's, because Cain does not give his best. And Cain becomes jealous. Have you ever been jealous of a sibling because your parents praised them for doing well? Uh, I know I was jealous of my older brothers. It seems like they were always being praised for things. And I was like, well, why don't I get praised for my thing? Or why am I not honored? And so uh, (laughs) Cain, in this fit of jealousy, kills his brother Abel because God has honored Abel's offering. And so God comes to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, "Uh, am I my brother's keeper? So he asks kind of a snarky question. And then God says, this is where it matters for our passage here in Hebrews. God says, the blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. The blood of your brother Abel cries out to me from the ground. That's significant. Uh, In Jewish uh, belief, the blood was the life. Life was in the blood. And the idea is that uh, Abel's lifeblood should have been flowing through his veins, but his lifeblood has been spilled on the ground. His lifeblood is no longer in his body sustaining him. His lifeblood has been taken from him unjustly and wickedly. And this is a way of saying, uh, Cain, your blood, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground and it's speaking a word of judgment against your unjust and wicked deed. The blood of your brother should be flowing through his veins, giving him life, and instead it's spilled on the ground and that speaks a word of judgment against your sinful and wicked behavior. Your unjust murder of your brother. And all of us have sinned. We may not have killed our siblings, (laughs) but all of us have sinned and we live under this curse of judgment before the Lord, but then Jesus comes and he, he dies on the cross, he sheds his blood and his blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel speaks judgment upon Cain. The blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness and grace over your sin and over my sin and that's good news today. And because Jesus washes us of our sin, we're able to come into the presence of God the Father in joyful celebration and that's good news. There's a lot we cannot trust in this world around us. Have you felt that to be true this last year? There's a lot we cannot trust in the world around us. We can struggle to trust politicians, the media, business at times, latest opinions, you name it. There are all kinds of things that we struggle to trust. We have a trust crisis 
in our culture right now. We could even struggle to trust ourselves. If you're like me, you can be so fickle that it's hard to trust yourself. I make these commitments one day, this is what I'm gonna pursue, I'm gonna do these great things over here, and then a week later I'm like, how is it that I've already left behind those commitments? I can be so fickle myself that I can't even trust myself. But Hebrews gives us reasons to trust the character of this unchanging God. He's unchanging, and we can trust his character. But not only trust his character in the fact that he's unchanging, but he's also gracious, he's holy, and he's loving. And we need him to be holy, to call out the sins of the world, including our own. He gives us a sense of meaning in the world, moral meaning in the world. But if that's all he did, all of us would be deeply troubled because he would point out the times that we have been immoral or the times we have not honored him. And all he would be able to do is to say, well, sometimes you've done well, but here are a lot of ways that you've actually sinned and fallen short of my righteousness and my holiness. The good news is that this God not only gives us moral meaning, but he also rescues us from our own sin and gives us eternal life and joy through Jesus Christ. That's good news. Well, let's look at another reason the author gives us for running the race. Keep running the race. Keep having, uh, placing your faith in Jesus because Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. Jesus has brought an unshakable kingdom. Let's look at verses 25 through 29. It says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Let's talk about that verse just for a second. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Him who is speaking is Jesus. All throughout Hebrews, it starts in chapter one. The author says, look, you've heard from these prophets of old. You've heard a lot of messengers, a lot of people speak, but Jesus has come to deliver a better message. He's He's like God's final messenger in some ways. Um, And so trust Jesus who is speaking. Trust him and don't refuse him who is speaking. For if they, meaning the Israelites who received the law at Sinai and then wandered in the desert, if they did not escape when they refused God who had warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The author is saying to the original audience, don't give up your faith in Jesus. Remember Israel, they wandered in the desert. They didn't trust God when he was with them on earth and uh, they ran into trouble. They were judged by God. How much more will we be judged if we reject Jesus, if we refuse him when he judges from heaven and when he speaks from heaven? So he's telling them, hold fast your faith in Jesus. And then he goes on and says, at that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So the author is saying here to the original audience, don't go back to Judaism, because only those who continue in their faith in Jesus receive this unshakable kingdom. If Israel rejected God when he walked with him on earth and was judged, how much more will people be judged if they reject and deny Jesus, if the Hebrew audience here abandon him and refuse Jesus, who will judge them from heaven? Hold fast your faith in Jesus. And hold fast your faith in Jesus because he will deliver an unshakable kingdom. An unshakable kingdom. The language of shaking all throughout the Old Testament is symbolic of God's judgment. God would shake the heavens and earth in moments when he's judging either Israel or other peoples. God would shake the foundations of the earth. This is a sign of God's judgment. And those things that remained after the shaking are things that persisted through judgment. Have you ever been baking and you have to sift some flour 
and maybe there's a clump that doesn't go through. It remains through the sifting. These are the things that remain through God's judgment. It talks about persisting through God's judgment that can last and can endure. If you have kids and never had the unenviable task of sifting through the sandbox, <laughs> there are not golden nuggets in there, unfortunately. But as you sift through, stuff remains and it persists. And what the author is saying here is God is going to judge all people. There will come a day when this God will judge all folks. And only those who have faith in Jesus will last through the sifting. And then once the sifting is over, there will be an unshakable kingdom, an unfading kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth that is unchanging and cannot be tainted, cannot be broken. It won't look like this world. It'll be a perfect heavens and a perfect earth where we'll dwell with God. And it's Jesus who brings this unshakable kingdom. So a couple of things as we close together tonight, a couple of things that matter for us. First of all, hold fast your faith in Jesus because only Jesus can allow us to last and persist through judgment. I think a lot of the time these days, if you're like me, we might worry way too much about what other people think about us instead of worrying about what a holy God knows to be true about us. Sometimes we spend so much energy worrying about what other people think about us, what they assume about us, what their opinion is about us, instead of worrying about what a holy God knows to be true about us. God knows us at our best, but he also knows us at our worst. And it's not others that will judge us at the end of all things. It's the Lord of heaven and earth that will judge me, that will judge you. And we should be concerned about what that God knows to be true about us. But so many times in our life, we get distracted and we're worried about what other people think about us, worried about what they assume about us, kind of worried about our reputation maybe. And maybe we spend less time saying, God, what do you know to be true about me? And what are the sins that are in my heart that need to be confessed? What are the sins that you know live in my heart? I need to be challenged in those and to receive your forgiveness and then also to walk in repentance. We need to be honest with God and allow him to shine a light on our sin so that he can forgive us of our sin, help us to walk in confession and repentance. And we can have the joy of knowing that when his judgment comes, when he judges all things at the end of time, we will persist through judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus makes us fit to pass through God's judgment. There's no amount of good deeds that you can do to make yourself fit to pass through God's judgment. His judgment is precise, piercingly precise. It terrifies me sometimes to think about what God will judge in my heart and my mind. We will all have to stand before God and give an account for the things that we've said, the things that we've thought, the things we've done in secret that we don't want to confess to other people, the things that we've thought and done in secret that we don't want to even confess to ourselves and say, yeah, that's been a part of my history. We'll stand before a holy and righteous God. And it's scary to think about whether we will pass through. But the good news is because of what Jesus has done, we are cleansed, we are made righteous, and he makes us fit to pass through judgment and to receive God's fatherly embrace and to stand in eternity in joy forever. That's a gift he gives us by grace. The second thing we want to do is place our hope in an unshakable kingdom, an unshakable kingdom that comes from an unchanging God. Has this last year not reminded us that so much of what we experience and can hope for in this world can be easily taken away? Our sense of financial security can be taken away very quickly. Our sense of peace can be taken away. Our sense of unity can be strained at times. Togetherness with other people can be strained. There's so many things in this life 
that can be taken away. And it's really neat to see, grateful to, to see how things are, it seems like life is kind of turning around a little bit now, getting a little bit back to normal. Praise God for that. Grateful for the ways that life seems to be getting back to normal in some ways. But I think there's a danger that as we start to kind of take joy in getting back to normal, we might forget to take joy in the fact that our, our true unshakable kingdom is only with God in heaven. We need to be reminded our true home is in heaven with God. And that's the only unshakable the only unshakable kingdom that gives us true hope. Our money will go away or it will go to someone else. Our career will eventually go away. For most of us, time and history will eventually forget us. I was sitting around my parents' dining table a couple of weeks ago down in Missouri and some nerd in our family, it wasn't me, I'm not the only nerd in our family. Most of us are German nerds, so das ist sehr gut, ja. So uh, we're sitting around the table and there was this wonderful chart that showed our family tree back to the 1500s. And there was name upon name upon name. It was so neat to see our family history traced back. But as I looked at all these people, uh, the further you go back, I'm like, I don't know that individual. I don't know that individual. I don't know who they are. I don't know who they are. These are my own flesh and blood and I don't even know them. I know nothing about them except their names and when they were born, when they died. Time and history will eventually forget us. Our health can fade. Our spouse can be taken away. Our children can be taken away. Our, our earthly comfort can and often is taken away. Successes can be taken away at times. No matter what kind of kingdom we try to build here in this life, time will tear it down or take it away. The problem with placing our ultimate hope in the here and now is that it is only here for now. But for those who believe in Jesus, nothing can take away our joyful hope of everlasting life. The God who created the heavens and who created the earth is also bringing a new heavens and a new earth that will be unshakable. Unshakable. Never to know a pandemic again. Never to know disunity again. Never to know injustice again. It will be unshaking and an unbreakable kingdom of goodness and joy and truth and beauty and love and fellowship as we gather with our heavenly father together as one family. That is an unshakable kingdom that Jesus made available to us. And that is where our ultimate hope, hope lies. May the Lord help us to love him and to place our hope in him for that kingdom. And then to live in light of that kingdom, to live in light of that kingdom. And then to serve him in ways that foreshadow that kingdom, to try and say, God, would you bring some of that kingdom even here and now? May it happen in this church. May it happen in our families. May it happen in our friendships. May it happen in our community groups. May the goodness of that future kingdom start breaking in even now. Have you seen that in your life? Even over this last year, the goodness of God's kingdom breaking into the mess of this world? Let's praise him and say, God, bring more of that. Do that again. Do it more and more in your people. As we praise you for the unshakable kingdom you'll bring, bring it even now. Bring some of that even now into our lives. And as he does that, may he be glorified in that. May the world see his goodness coming into our lives and through us. May people see his goodness and see his glory. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for the book of Hebrews. We thank you so much for all the reasons that we can trust you as an unchanging God. You've remained holy in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the Old Covenant, New Covenant. You remain a holy God but you also remain gracious and loving and merciful. We thank you, Lord God, that you do not change like the shadows, but you remain consistent 
and trustworthy and reliable and good. Help us to trust you when life tempts us away from you not to trust you. Remind us of all the reasons we have to hold fast our faith in Jesus. Remind us of all the good news that we have because of what Jesus has done. Remind us that we will pass through your good and perfect judgment because of what Jesus has done for us. Remind us that we have an unshakable and unbreaking kingdom awaiting us because of what you have done. Help us, Lord God, in moments of fear and doubt and worry to find our hope in you. And then, Lord God, as we find our hope in you, as we trust you with our lives, we pray that you would use us for your glory. Glorify yourself as you work in us and through us. We pray that our lives would be sweet worship to you in Jesus' name. Amen.